0: Please pray with me. We thank you for today. We thank you for the beautiful morning you have given to us today. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the hope and the peace that you give to us through the salvation that was won for us through extreme torture by our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us meaning, you've given us purpose, you've given us an eternal hope, that no matter what happens to us in this life, even if the worst thing in the world happens to us, and that's death, all that is, is a doorway to spending an eternity with you. We thank you for all these truths that your word reveals to us. Who you are, who we are, how we can be restored to you, and how we can have this eternal hope. So Lord, I pray that your word would go forth this morning, work in our hearts, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. probably have never thought about these since you know we're americans uh but here are a few strange rules that every person who is part of the british royal family must follow the first one is this <laughs> whoever the reigning monarch is when you are dining in the same room as him or her King Charles now, Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth before, uh, when he or she is done eating and sets down their fork and knife, everyone else in the room is done eating too. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you just got your meal or you're not done eating or you're still hungry. Imagine being in the same dining room as Queen Elizabeth. You know, uh, she eats one bite and then everybody else is done eating too. If now, if the now King Charles is done eating, you're done eating. Correct me if I'm wrong. That would never fly in America, right? (laughs) Here's another one that wouldn't fly in America. Every single member of the royal family gets weighed before and after Christmas dinner every year. (laughs) If you gained weight from the meal, that means you truly enjoyed it. Anybody wanna start that tradition in their household? I think that's the last thing you'd ever do. The tradition goes back to King Edward VII who wanted to ensure that his guests ate well for Christmas dinner. As strange as those are, here's one of the strangest. Queen Elizabeth banned the royal family from playing the board game Monopoly. (laughs) Apparently everyone got too competitive and vicious. When it, play- when it was played, and so the queen outlawed it from the family. I think a lot of us, on our family game nights, playing Monopoly with our families, could see how and why that game would get banned, right? I think some of us could see that pretty easily. Don't need to worry about foreign threats if playing Monopoly with your family gets too dangerous. <laughs> While these are rules that the British royals are never supposed to break, Jesus, as the king of the entire universe, broke an unwritten rule that humanity had come up with. Jesus, as the king, made himself as a servant and did something absolutely unthinkable for a king to do. What was this unthinkable act that was only reserved for servants to do, and what does that mean for us today? Like I mentioned several times in our message last week, we wrapped up the last few verses of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus gives one last summary and call for people to put their faith in him as their Messiah and deliverer. That's what we ended chapter 12 with. And now the Apostle John transitions to Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. During the last Passover meal, Jesus shares with his disciples before he is arrested and crucified. In fact, chapters 13 through 17 all cover what is said and done during this Last Supper. We've hit the next time marker in what's called Holy or Passion Week with the beginning of chapter 13, the evening of the Thursday of that week or what is called Maundy Thursday in a lot of churches. Now before we go any further, we need to clear something up. This is going to be a little detailed, so hope everybody had their second cup of coffee today. Everybody, get, Okay, some of you are shaking your heads. You picked the wrong Sunday to not have your second cup of coffee. Alright, here we go. The other three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe how this meal that John is also referencing in our passage this morning is one and the same as the Passover meal of that year. In fact, as one biblical scholar points out, Mark 14.12 literally says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Everything that follows, including the institution of the Lord's Supper, or what is known as communion in practice for us today, then the exit to the Garden of Gethsemane is all supposed to take place during that Passover meal. However, what do we read in John 13:1? John 13, the first part of John 13. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 13. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 13 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read in the first part of verse 1. Now what? What do you see there? I'm getting a lot of blank stares at me right now. Now before the feast of the Passover. Okay, that's what it says. Then all that is described is some kind of supper after that, some kind of meal. Furthermore, John's gospel is adamant that Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation. For the Passover, when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. John 19, 14 says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he, Pilate, said to the Jews, look, you're king. This is before Jesus is crucified. John also writes that the religious leaders... Brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. So, what have they not eaten yet? The Passover meal. Where is Jesus? He's already in trial here. So the Gospel of John clearly indicates that Jesus was crucified before Passover was observed, thus implying that the meal described in John 13 could not have been the Passover meal, but just a special meal Jesus had with his disciples before Passover. However, remember, like I just referenced, the Synoptic Gospels, clearly say that this meal is the Passover. It seems like a glaring contradiction, doesn't it? A few theories have been put forth to explain this. The traditional view is that all four Gospels are describing the same meal, the last Passover meal before Jesus is crucified. This view holds that John does does give details that would agree with a Passover meal, separating it from just a normal meal. Another view is that John is describing a meal before the Passover meal, But John 18 indicates that it was immediately after John 13 through 17 that Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested, which would have to agree with the synoptic's description that it was the Passover. It certainly looks like the three synoptic Gospels, and John disagree with one another as to the timing of this meal. However... (laughs) There is ample evidence, and this is what I learned at Moody as, as to the biblical and correct reconciliation between the differing accounts, that at the time of Jesus' first advent, there were actually two different ways people calculated days, and therefore feast days. Now stay with me, everybody's still with me so far, okay? Even those who didn't have their second cup of coffee, all right. The first way of calculating days back then was what was called the Galilean way. All right? Keep that in your head. The first way of calculating days was what was called the Galilean way, which calculated a day as starting with sunrise and ending with the next sunrise. From sunrise to sunrise was one day. Where was Jesus raised primarily? Doug drew a great map of this on the whiteboard in room 22 for Sunday school this morning. Where was Jesus raised primarily? What town? Nazareth. In? Galilee. Okay. Most of the disciples were either from Galilee or the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Andrew, Peter, James, John, Philip we're all from Bethsaida on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Nathanael slash Bartholomew was from Cana in Galilee, and we know Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee. So, we know at least half of the disciples were from Galilee. In Acts 1, 10 through 11, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, two angels appear and say to the disciples, As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come down in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Biblical scholars have concluded that the Pharisees, for what's worth, also follow the Galilean way of calculating days. That's the first way of calculating a day, sunrise to sunrise, the Galilean way. The Sadducees were another sect within Judaism and were more highly influenced by the Hellenistic or Greek way of doing things imposed upon Palestine when the Greeks conquered and oppressed the Jewish people living there. They also had a much more friendlier relationship with the Romans, these Hellenistic-influenced Sadducees calculated days from sunset to sunset. The Mosaic law mandated that the Passover lamb be killed and eaten on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, or Nisan 14th. Both ways of calculating time would have obeyed this commandment. The Galilean way would have had Nisan 14th start at sunrise and end at the next sunrise, while the Hellenistic way would have had Nisan 14th start at sunset and end at sunset. Everybody's still with me so far, right? Okay, we also have to remember who the Apostle John is writing to with this fourth gospel, He's writing to the church scattered across the ancient Mediterranean world, who is probably more accustomed to the Hellenistic way of calculating days, which was, remember, sunset to sunset. That was the Hellenistic way. And so his gospel reflects this Hellenistic and Sadducean way of calculating days. Okay, so how do we put all this together? Because there are two different ways of calculating days, the priests made provision for both times of observing the Passover. The Pharisees, whose main mission it was to preserve traditional Jewish culture and beliefs from becoming Romanized, and Jesus and his disciples, all Galileans, who all basically hailed from Galilee, followed the Galilean sunrise-to-sunrise method, thus observing Passover early in the evening of their way of calculating Nisan 14th. The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all reflect that method of calculating days. The Sadducean observance of Passover followed by a lot of the the high priest and Jewish aristocracy and especially in the temple located in Judea and followed by a mostly Hellenized Roman world would have started at the sunset of Nisan 14th with Jesus arrested at night after sunset tried illegally at night and crucified around the same time as those observing the Sadducean Nisan 14th, were killing the Passover lambs in the temple, with Jesus dead before the next sunset, and buried before the Sabbath, which is the following day, began at sunset. Both descriptions of Passover and when they were observed are correct. As we just went through. And Jesus fulfilled both observances. In other words, Jesus and his disciples observed the Passover on their calculation of Passover on Nisan 14th. And Jesus was killed as the literal and physical fulfillment of the Passover lamb on the other Nisan 14th. Thus, Jesus fulfilled All of the aspects of the Passover lamb and all four gospel accounts are correct with no discrepancy and no contradiction. And this also fulfills John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus is the lamb of God. All the way back in John 1, as well as Paul's reference to Jesus being sacrificed as our Passover lamb and fulfillment of its meaning in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-7. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover. Also, has been sacrificed. Lastly, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 9 through 10 that everything included in the Mosaic law, including the command to observe Passover, was a shadow to point to Jesus, his sacrifice, and his blood covering us. Thus, his sacrifice must also include fulfilling the Passover sacrifice with his blood as the passover lamb. All of that is to explain that while John says in 13:1 that this meal was before the passover, that reflects the Hellenized understanding of calculating days to his readers But this meal that we're about to talk about is one and the same as the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Everybody still with me so far? Yes? Okay. Very good job, you guys. All right, let's let's move on to the rest of verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that this observance of the Passover meal with his disciples was what would be the very last event that would happen before he would be arrested and brutally tortured. But we see where his heart is here in verse 1. Even and especially here. Where is it? It's entirely off of himself and entirely on his disciples. This heart and mindset of humility is the foundation for everything else that will happen during this Passover meal. The phrase, to the end, as mentioned by one biblical scholar, is a reference to the very end of his life. Jesus loved his disciples, even Judas Iscariot, to the very point when he declared, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. Jesus would depart out of this world to his father but he would have to go through indescribable torment and death before that point. This love extends to all of his own, all of the sheep he described in John chapter 10. All those who would recognize and follow his voice and never be snatched out of his hand or the father's hand. Jesus' obedience to the Father and his love for us is what led to this last supper and the road of the cross. Next, we read this in verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, See, we have to remember, this is peeling back the curtain a little bit here in verse 2. We have to remember that everything that has taken place in the whole history of humanity, including right now, is this intense spiritual war going on behind the scenes that we don't see very often. Judas Iscariot was responsible for his own actions, but it was Satan himself who kept working at him and working at him until he planted the thought and idea in his heart and mind to betray Jesus. In fact, one biblical scholar went so far as to say that the idea to betray Jesus wasn't even an original thought by Judas. That wasn't something Judas himself came up with. He thought, oh, I know know of a way to to have a side hustle here and make a little extra money. That wasn't Judas's, it wasn't even Judas's original idea. He was faithless, but as we just read in verse 2, it's Satan himself who is the one who puts the idea into Judas's head and heart. Satan was trying to get rid of, once and for all, the Son of God and what the Son of God had set out to accomplish. It started thousands of years before this when Satan took down humanity by convincing them to sin for the first time. If he could corrupt the whole human race, then who else would be corrupted? The Deliverer that was prophesied about. The deliverer would also be corrupted and not be a perfect sacrifice to save humanity from their sin. This is what Satan was thinking. I've talked about this before, but time and time again, we see, sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes not so behind the scenes, Satan trying to undermine and destroy God's plan for a deliverer to save humanity from their sin. He got so far as to corrupt the human race so much so that God had to destroy it except for one family. He then tried to destroy God's people time and time and time again, getting them enslaved by the pagan Egyptians, then, getting, then trying to destroy them with the pagan people groups in Canaan, corrupting the nation of Israel so much so that God had to exile them, to discipline them, and turn them back to him. Then look at all the times Satan has tried to get Jesus killed before it was the right timing for it. But each and every time, we see this in God's word, each and every time, Satan's plan was thwarted. For nothing will thwart or stop God's sovereign plan. And now, in our passage, Satan is desperate, finding the disciple with the weakest faith and directly planting his idea into his head and heart. Jesus knew this. Jesus was the one who prophesied it back in John 6, 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And Jesus knows who he himself is. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. I just want to focus on that verse for a second. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was the son of God. The second person of the trinity. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Through whom all things that exist came to exist. And the king of an everlasting kingdom. He knew who he was. He knows who. All the prophecies about his enemies being made his footstool and ruling the universe with a rod of iron and people from all over the world paying homage to him as king over the messianic kingdom. Jesus knows exactly who he is. Satan is the epitome of pride. Ezekiel 28, as pointed out by biblical scholarship, in Ezekiel 28, Satan was one of the most beautiful angels who was God's anointed angel before his throne. He may have even been the one that guarded the throne of God. That's what makes his betrayal so so tragic. He believed himself to be better than the position that God appointed him to, Believed himself to be the cause of his station. And as Ezekiel 28.16 says, was internally filled with malice and violence. He was first removed from his position. Obviously, God can't have that in heaven. He was first removed from his position before the throne, then kicked out of heaven as we just talked about, Satan has then made it his mission to destroy the pinnacle of God's creation and destroy God's plan for them. We see Satan's influence in the world and on humanity for the past thousands of years of humanity's existence, seeking to destroy as much of us and as many of us as possible, both physically and and spiritually, and all of this stems from his pride. And it's completely misplaced, pride. There's no reason Satan had to be as prideful as he is. Similarly, the disciples argued about who would be greatest in the Messianic kingdom as humanity is just naturally bent towards pride in our fallenness. On the other hand, Jesus has every reason to be prideful, in theory, but is the complete opposite of that. And he, instead, he's the epitome of humility. Jesus is completely contrasted with both the pride of Satan and of us as fallen human beings. We see Jesus' Humility on full display in verse 4. God up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Jesus took off the clothing that wasn't necessary down to the bare minimum, probably just a simple tunic. As you may or may not have learned already, girding up a tunic was what a soldier would do to prepare for battle. A tunic was the most common basic piece of clothing for most people, and it was basically a long shirt or, or uh, like a nightgown type thing that we, that we might think of today. So soldiers would hike it up above their knees and stick the excess of it into their belts so that they could run more easily in battle. That's what girding up their tunic meant. In Jesus' case... He hiked up his tunic's excess and stuck it into his belt so that he could bend down and move around more easily for what he does here. But the military aspect of this can't be lost on us either. Just we talked about this intense spiritual war that Satan has been waging against Jesus for, and against humanity for thousands of years, and here Jesus does what doesn't make any sense to us. He girds up his tunic like a soldier does for battle because he knows this is really a spiritual battle that he's involved in. But then what does he do? He does he performs the most humble act anybody could could do. That is what he does in this in fighting in this spiritual battle. Now Jesus taking off his garments down to the bare minimum and girding up his tunic in and of itself was an act of humility. Royalty, high society people, would never gird up their tunic to do anything. Menial tasks that required the girding up of a tunic was only for servants. Household servants in this time period. So for Jesus to even gird up his tunic was identifying himself as a servant and not the king he rightfully was. Beyond that action, what does Jesus do after he girds up his his tunic? Verse 5, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Again, similar to the girding up of a tunic, the washing of feet was the household servant's job. If there was no household servant, whoever was lower in social status in the family washed the feet of those above them. The roads were very dusty in Palestine, and so washing your feet was a necessary task. If someone hosted a dinner, they were seen as honorable if they provided a servant to wash the feet of the guests. And it was considered a very embarrassing social no-no if they didn't. You were the talk of the town if you didn't provide that. Since this was a Passover meal, as described by everyone reclining after this foot-washing event... What was customary was for the meal to be served on a table sitting very low to the ground and everyone gathered for that meal, seated on cushions around that table, on the floor, sitting on the floor on cushions. Everyone would be facing the table in a reclining position with their feet facing outward and away from the table. Thus, as noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus went around the outside Of the circle of his disciples around this table and wash their feet in that way Jesus broke every single every single one every single social custom in place when he did this at the very least in people's eyes he was an esteemed rabbi in reality he was the king of the entire universe in either case both of being a rabbi and certainly as the son of God, this was absolutely unheard of. In fact, as one biblical scholar noted, in the pagan Greco-Roman world, those in high social positions never, never, ever, ever lowered themselves to lower positions in any way, for any reason. Never. Their high Social position gave them the right in society to never demean themselves in any way for any reason. In the Jewish world, religious leaders would hold humility in high regard and teach on the importance of it, but the one social construct they still upheld was the order of status. That's why Jesus rebuked the practice of the religious leaders vying for the highest places of honor at dinners and social functions in Luke 14 when he noticed how the guests were trying to seat themselves at the best places. That's just what everyone, including the religious leaders in the Jewish world at that time, did in practice. That's how they behaved. And so in identifying himself with the position of servant, Jesus shattered both the Greco-Roman and Jewish emphasis on high society, demeaning themselves to lower social classes, much less the class of a household servant. And in doing so, what he did is turn the pride of Satan and fallen human beings back on itself to show the pointlessness, meaninglessness, and vanity of what it really was. Really, as Jesus showed with this action, self-promoting pride is a mirage. There's no reason for it. It's completely misplaced. If God himself and the king of the universe cast it aside, and lowered himself to the position of servant, then self-promoting pride holds absolutely no meaning. Jesus sapped all of the power out of the highest and greatest treasure both Satan and fallen humanity has held so dearly. This is just the first in a series of Jesus' public and purposeful display of humility, ending with his death on a splintery cross reserved for the worst criminals the Romans wanted to make public examples out of to the rest of the populace. You don't want this same thing to happen to you. You better stay in line, was the message of crucifixion. The Apostle Paul points this out exactly when he writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death Even death on a cross. As referenced by one biblical scholar, the word grasped in the NASB and other versions is not the best translation for our understanding here. Last word up there. Rather, the word in the Greek should best be translated as exploited for selfish ends. Exploited for selfish ends. So, Jesus, already existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for selfish ends. Nor did Jesus empty himself of his deity or even divine attributes, but emptied himself by lowering himself to being incarnated as God in human flesh. And not even just a human being, but the lowest social class of human being, as he's displaying here in our passage this morning, a bond servant. Like you've heard me mention before, the slavery described in the Mosaic Law is nothing like the dehumanizing and unspeakably cruel form of slavery that existed in the 18th and 19th centuries in the United States. The slavery referenced in the Mosaic Law is mostly having to do with indentured servitude, where someone who was so indebted to someone else, they couldn't pay it, either they or someone else in their family would sell themselves into indentured servitude to pay off their debt. And according to the Mosaic Law, these indentured servants were supposed to go debt-free every seven years. Go free and debt-free every seven years. That practice continued into Jesus' time, and afterwards, so when Paul refers to Jesus lowering himself to that of a bondservant, this is the exact type of servant he's referring to. Paul also considered himself a bondservant to Christ himself. All that to say that Jesus is the epitome of humility and the complete opposite of self-promoting Pride, As Paul wrote, Jesus never considered his equality with God the Father within the Trinity to be something for him to exploit for selfish ends, but gave up his heavenly status by becoming God incarnate in human flesh, even that of an indentured bondservant. And not only did he lower himself to the lowest human social status, but his obedience to the Father drove him to obey him, even to the point of the most humiliating, torturous, and demeaning form of execution that ever existed. Knowing this, as Jesus' disciples, what does this tell us? We have absolutely no right to think we can have any amount of self-promoting pride, right? If the Son of God didn't think his heavenly status was anything to, to exploit, why in the world should any of us think we should have or grasp onto any amount of pride? We don't, in other words. In fact, as we've looked at recently, the Apostle James flat-out writes, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God stands opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want God Almighty standing opposed to you? I don't think any one of us here does, but God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Leave it up to him. If you think there is any room for pride in your life and how you relate to others, that's a mirage. It's fake. It shouldn't exist. It doesn't exist. You're creating it to exist. There is no room for that in the life of the Jesus follower. If we've been basing our thoughts and actions on selfish pride in any way, we need to repent of that and humble ourselves before God. Any exaltation of us should and must only come from God himself, not from ourselves. The beginning of the road of Jesus' utmost humility that ended at the cross began with this act of foot washing we just talked about. These are bookends, as the most demeaning actions one could show To show their humility. Jesus knows humility. And Jesus knows humiliation. Jesus knows demeaning himself. And Jesus knows mockery. Jesus knows the humiliation we go through. As the author of Hebrews says. Jesus knows our every weakness. And as our high priest intercedes for us with first-hand knowledge of what we go through. Ultimately, we must worship Jesus for lowering himself in humility in every way, both in obedience to the Father and out of love for us. He lowered himself to the position of bondservant and illustrated that in a very real way by washing his disciples' feet. And he obeyed his father even to the point of the most humiliating death he could experience. Through this, he knows everything we go through, even the most demeaning and humiliating experiences we go through. Run to him. Run to him, especially in those most demeaning and humiliating experiences he will wrap you in his arms and fill you with his love, his peace, his purpose, his meaning. As Paul writes in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit himself will remind you of who you are as children of the Most High God. You are one of God's precious children Bought and covered by the blood of Christ. You are a child of the Most High God and the King of the universe. As Paul writes in the same chapter of Romans 48, if God is for us, let me hear it. Who can be against us? Be against us? The answer? No one. No. Nobody. So find your peace and rest in the arms of your Savior and King. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're feeling. And He loves you with a love that no words can describe. We're going to end with these Have we've been talking about. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Let's approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in your word. Everything it reveals to us about who you are, what your heart is, what you show as what is truly important. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your humility. We thank you for humbling yourself. Being God in human flesh and even displaying that of, of a bondservant. We thank you for going down that road to the cross, for taking our punishment for us, for experiencing all the torture and the mockery and the humiliation and the intense, extreme, indescribable pain for us, for obedience to your Father and for us, out of your love for us. And Lord, we know that because of this, Because of this, because you experienced all of that humiliation, you know, you know what we're going through. You know how we feel when we go through demeaning and humiliating times. Lord, I pray that we would run to you immediately and find our worth, find our meaning, find our identity in you and you alone. We thank you for all that you are, all that you show to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.